Western Australia. There's award-winning wineries, jaw-dropping beaches, iconic emu export, just to name a few. But that's irrelevant on the yarn. Today, we're focused on the over 4,500 wool producers in WA and their 15 million sheep, which make up 60% of the total value of the WA sheep industry. You're listening to The Yarn, a podcast for and about the Australian wool industry. I'm Ellie Bigwood, and we're back in my motherland of Western Australia this week to top off a three-part series about the WA wool industry. There's no doubt that the West Aussies contribute high-quality wool to our national clip. 95% of WA wool is merino wool, measuring less than 24.5 micron, and about 40% is 19.5 micron or less. If WA was a country, it would be the fifth largest wool producer in the world, behind China, New South Wales, New Zealand and Victoria. We've been travelling around the West on an educational quest to further understand the clockworks of the WA wool industry and share the stories of our wool growers and stakeholders there to our The Yarn listeners. AWI's Marius Cumming was in the heart of the WA Wheat Belt with Kristen Lafroy from Cranmore Farming, speaking with Kristen about his mixed enterprise farm and how Cranmore Farming runs merino sheep to fit in with the large amount of crops they manage year in, year out. Kristen, thank you very much for joining us uh, on The Yarn. What sort of a year did you have last year? Uh, we actually had probably the best year financially and we've, we, that we've ever had. I'd say we had really fantastic cropping yields and for a change we had fantastic yields and fantastic prices at the same time. Uh, The wool market was up, ram prices were fantastic, sheep prices were good. It was just all around one of those years I'll hopefully see again but may not see see again. You run a property here that has uh, an amazing history in terms of... uh Australian pastoral histories and you have got a particular bent on grain and graze um, incorporating sheep in a cropping system. Tell us a little bit about um, the property that you run here. Um, we own and lease about 20,000 acres and we crop roughly 70% of the arable area um, and then run uh, stud and commercial merino flock and Angus cows on that. And the, the sheep and the cat, I, I prefer the livestock component, despite the fact that the cropping is certainly a much bigger part of the business. But I find that the sheep, are, particularly the sheep, uh, they work well in our cropping system. They use the stubbles, they eat some weeds, they reduce fire danger, they're a risk management tool. They're not hard to mix in with the cropping, or I don't find it hard to mix in with the cropping system. Um, sometimes there's clashes as it would be with anything in timing but you just have to work your way around it and with a bit of organisation normally we can make it work. So what uh, what are the fancy toys that, that you've purchased and have they made a difference to your uh, labour efficiency? Yeah well, uh, well one that's not actually a fancy toy is we've um, my, I think it was probably my granddad started putting uh, laneways through the farm so the, the main farm here, there's, we're right in the middle and we've got about 6Ks either north and south to the boundary and so there's a laneway that runs through the middle from one to each end. There's also a road that runs the 12Ks so we've actually got pretty good access to everywhere so that's been a big, that's a massive labour saver as long as the fences are up to scratch. Done a bit, we actually built a new shearing shed about three years ago, um, knocked down part of the old one and uh, integrated a new one into the old one which has actually made a big difference and the shearers love it we love it it's much nicer place to work 
it's a big investment, but it'll be here for a couple of generations. Um, so in the scheme of things, it's you know it's less than a, a certainly a lot less than a header, and it'll last. There's going to be a lot of headers go go through here before that shearing shed's fallen down. We invested in a auto drafter with electronic for electronic tags, um, tag rating probably five or six years ago. Probably haven't really got the use out of that until the last couple of years that we should have. Um, we're just really starting to try and introduce, well, we've introduced EIDs in now. Last year we, we EID'd everything, all the lambs, so everything will get a weight. We've got a weight at weaning and that sort of thing. Um, we're trying to use that as much as possible. Using ASBVs now within the stud fairly extensively. We are currently looking at a Wi-Fi setup around the houses and the sheds sort of, and then probably have some various nodes around the farm um, which in time we might be able to utilise in some way with auto drafting or record keeping or something for the, for the sheep and for the cropping for that matter. Weather stations, that sort of thing, maybe automatic gates, cameras on water points, that sort of thing. More things in the pipeline. Well, plus the plus the robotic shearing machine. So yeah, obviously um, you're you're a lover of merino sheep. Tell us about your ideal sheep. What does she look like? What does she cut? What does she produce? Um, What are you aiming for there? Well, obviously she's got to be easy care. We are a mixed farm, so we don't go and check our sheep every day. Obviously, we do all the animal husbandry we can to maximise their production and keep them as healthy and happy and produce. Um, so we we really do try to look after them as best we can, but you know there's got to be a limit to the amount of money we spend on it. So she's got to be easy care. Ideally, we would not be mulesing, we wouldn't be drenching. I think vaccinating will probably always be necessary for whether that just diseases or maybe some nutrients and that sort of thing obviously cutting as much wool as possible I mean, we produce sort of in the sort of 18 19 micron sort of range um it's got to be a very soft you know low lowest cv as we can probably i think 18 19 micron seems to be the hardier type of sheep in our sort of country that seems to work quite well and obviously producing as much of it as we can but Obviously, the easy care. So the drenching be fantastic to not have to drench and not have to mules. We are sort of trying to work down that road, and yeah, we, we've been trying to do that for a while. We haven't. We've been uh, selecting for worm resist or fecal worm counts in our rams for probably nearly twenty years now. It has certainly improved, but we're certainly not there yet. So you've got an idea of um, the sheep enterprise, and in terms of uh, being a, a merino producer, when those weaners through summer, how do you get the protein and energy um, into those young sheep that they require within a, a cropping system? Well, we we've traditionally our, our soil type hasn't been conducive to a lot of lupin growing, which there's generally been a lot of lupins growing in the WA wheat belt. That's reduced over the last. 20 years due to profitability and so the yields of the varieties but the varieties have improved a bit in the last decade so we've actually started growing our own lupins rather than purchasing them so apart from obviously harvesting the lupins um, I don't really mind if there's a bit of lupins left in the paddock and the weaners probably three quarters of our weaners went on to lupin stubbles this year 
and they are getting trial fed. They're, they're out of them now, um, but they're on cereal stubbles and they're getting trial fed lupins um, or will be using feed lo- uh, lick feeders. But yeah, we, we, we do we do have to feed. But I mean, I think the, the lupins are easier to feed than the wheat and barley and oats. Um, they're certainly a lot more. They're a lot higher in protein and more nutritious and higher in energy. So the first year really is just trying to keep them keep them ticking away. Really. So a lot of people in WA that that have sheep in a cropping uh, system say, well, the benefits are there in terms of uh, managing herbicide resistance and those summer weeds and what have you. And the uh, the opposite is true also in that, that people say, look, you've, you've got to feed them in the summer and uh, um, it, it, it's, it's labour intensive. So where do you sit on that sort of spectrum in terms of the sheep being labour intensive versus being a great risk management tool? I don't think there's any doubt they're a risk management tool. You know, a frost doesn't kill a, a sheep. It certainly can kill a crop. And if there's a drought, the crop will not grow. The, if there's a drought, we can, as long as we've got the supply of grain, we can feed the sheep and keep them alive. Obviously, water can be an issue there, but um, we actually have built a desalination plant on a salty bore last year, just a smallish one, which was mainly for spraying but we do use it for livestock or can use it for livestock as well um it's so actually solar powered fully fully self-contained works well well yeah it does work well i mean they're not a cheap investment but um obviously with anything the bigger it is and the more capacity it is the cheaper it is per unit water in this case so it does work well i mean we're sort of a little bit of a pilot project so we've had a few teething problems but we actually haven't had very many. The people we used have actually built a lot of them in um, on some of the Pacific Islands, and they've done a few in Africa. So they've been they've been really really helpful because they do want to try and get into the agricultural. So you rec- you recommend a, a desal plant yeah, if you can afford it. If, if you can afford it, and if you can find really have got a good use for it, I, I think probably they're probably not a luxury item. They're probably not something where if you can really see a use for them. Um, if you do have an issue, if you do have a supply of Salty water, in our case. Or what, how salty was it? It was sort of half seawater, or a bit over half seawater. Um, how many? Uh, I think that sixteen thousand right. millisiemens or something. Up there, like. isn't it? Yeah. it? Well, it certainly is up there. Um, and now I can I can comfortably drink it. Where I'd cut the, or pump it back to the house quite happily and drink it. We're in this amazing digital age that has been present in the cropping industry for many many years and has only just started to come into sheep um, what sort of things would really change the game for you in terms of your merino enterprise what are things uh, you're expecting to come out in the next 10 years or so uh, the, the virtual fencing for me would be fantastic being an old property we've got got a lot of old fences we've done a lot of fencing over the last well we're always fencing but particularly over the last 10 or 15 years we put up a lot of new fences and it's expensive and if we could have virtual some form of virtual fencing, that's going to be a massive capital and work cost saving. And, I mean, where, where you have a virtual fence, I mean, it's not going to be perfect, but it's going to be a whole lot better than spending thousands of dollars per kilometre on building a brand-new fence. And there'll be other advantages of it. Obviously, it's got to be powered so it, to one extent, so you're going to, you can have other technology associated with that power source or that where the fence starts or however you do it i'm sure there'd be there'd be some way of doing it you could sort of move the paddock doesn't have to be dictated to by 
where a tree line is or you know, where a gully is, you can you can put it where you like. And in terms of wool harvesting, um, do you have no problems getting shearers and wool handlers or is that becoming an issue? No, we're, we're pretty lucky at the moment. There's quite a few teams, well, there's quite a few teams in Mora. We think we've got the best team. We use the best team around here as far as we're concerned and we're, we're pretty lucky. And I mean, there as long as we've invested money in the shed and really there's... You know, really, we've done that for the shearers. I mean, obviously, it makes it a little. The time I spend in the shed is more pleasant, but really, we've invested in them for them for their benefit, and so they and they do actually genuinely appreciate that we've spent a lot of money. And I'm really not going to make. I'm not really going to see a return on that investment myself. Potential won't see it, but I think it, it will be. There will be a return, but I just I just won't see it myself. Yeah. And there's a certain bit of history here in terms of uh, a certain cradle. Tell us a bit about the cradle. Yes, my my grandfather invented with help from the, of the staff at the time, no doubt, um, the Mulesing cradle, the Cranmore cradle that uh, has been work, changed a bit since then. But yeah, we've still got the the original two prototypes on the property and um, I learnt to mules on those cradles so a bit old now and a bit thin very worn out but they're still there and uh, interesting that you're you're moving towards a, a non-mules enterprise or what, how do you view that? I'd love to I certainly would love to go that way um, it's obviously it's it's a it's a long long term um, sort of process we're certainly playing our sheep down considerably but we're your typical wrinkly little pepin probably 30 years ago. Um, certainly not that anymore. The sheep are a lot bigger. They cut a lot more wool and they're a lot plainer. We do still tail strip, um, but we don't mules so that we've got to try to get the best of both worlds at this point. Obviously, it's still considered mulesing, but we can actually select for a bearer breached animal by doing it like that. Well, Kristen, thank you very much for um, having us today. And, um, yeah, wonderful to have you on the yarn. Thanks for having a yarn with us. No worries. Thanks very much. That was Kristen Lafroy from Cranmore Farming in the West Australian Wheat Belt. The vision of the National Wild Dog Action Plan is for stakeholders to work together to deliver effective, coordinated and humane management of wild dogs. Since 2011, AWI has supported 17 groups throughout WA – in the regions of the Eastern and Central Wheat Belt, West Midlands, Esperance and Ravensthorpe, covering multiple shires and assisting many landholders. AWI supports these groups to overcome emergency pest animal challenges and lay secure foundations for sustainable long-term future pest animal control programs. Maya Aldridge is the AWI-funded Wild Dog Coordinator for Western Australia. Her role is to assist wool growers and other key stakeholders to work together to lessen the impact of livestock predation by wild dogs. AWI's Myris Cumming was on the ground in Minganyu, which is about a four-hour drive north of Perth, to have a yarn with Maya about her role and why the long-term investments of wild dog control are initiatives that she wanted to be involved in. As you can tell I'm uh, from the accent, I'm not exactly Australian. I'm from Salinas, California, where we grow lots of lettuce, also um, cattle and that sort of thing. So, yes, I came here in uh, 2010, worked on cattle stations and decided to move here in 2012. And basically I worked on cattle stations for about five years in the Pilbara and then um, started working for AWI in 2016 um, as a wild dog coordinator put in the northern agricultural region because there was a bit of a gap, not a lot of control happening and people losing stock from wild dogs. 
I had to do a lot of research and studying when I started this job and talk to a lot of people to understand what was going on within the space because it's sort of an elusive situation. A lot of people don't know what's going on or understand the complexity of the issue. Yes, you you had a pretty steep learning curve. And wild dogs have become or have been an issue across uh, a lot of pastoral Australia. And in a lot of areas, there has been um, some great gains. Uh, tell us about how you first started uh, approaching the problem. Okay, well, I first started with the Central Wheat Belt. Basically, the committee dissolved in, in that area, and we started again from zero. They hired new professionals to work in the space. That means doggers, LPMT, licensed pest technicians. And they started with a new committee, so they hired a new executive officer. They, they hired some new people on the committee. Not hired, but added a few different people on the committee. So basically, you started over again to, to make a better situation. And, and the main thing is that you have good executive officers, good um, LPMDs, good technicians, so doggers doing the work on the ground, and you have a really strong committee. So that's what we, we started with, with the Central Wheat Belt, and it's been about three years since I started. They're doing really well now. And then in the Northern Agricultural Zone, Northampton, Chapman Valley, and uh, Mullawa area, there's another group going up there called the Northern Biosecurity Group, um, and they have a few LPMTs, an executive officer, and a, a committee, and, and they're going to be rated in 2019 this year. In Did June. you say rated? Rated. They. What does that mean? So what happens is we have these things called recognized biosecurity groups in Western Australia, where 50% of the government pays for the group, and 50% of the community pays for the group. So the group is dependent on the shires, so that means that the landholders within those shires pay for it. And that's a rate or a tax that is put towards the landholders, and then that funds the control of the biosecurity group. So that could be pigs, dogs. Most of these groups are dealing with dogs, but they also do a bit of pig control as well. From what I understand about wild dog control from my time at AWI is that there has to be a community buy-in, there has to be a plan, and it has to be a long-term commitment. Is that your understanding? Well, the best thing that I can do is put myself out of a job. So you really want these places to be sustainable. And that's what's great about RBGs is basically you're not dependent on grants coming in from AWI or other sources. You put these groups together and they're getting rated the same every year. So that means the community and, and the group can be sustainable for a long period of time. These groups usually have community uh, baitings, so the group, the community comes in and they bait together as a unit, and then they also all pay together as a community for the LPMT that they hire, because we're always going to have a few gaps in the system. So if you can have an LPMT working across the area where everyone pays for this LPMT, the dogger, and then you also have community baiting days as well where people come and they, and they bait their properties together. So from the few years you've been with us, is it working and how are you measuring that? Okay, how are we measuring that? Look, there's always can be better data coming in from landholders about how many stock losses that you have. The groups, there are farmers that I've talked to, look, they're actually staying in, in sheep now. If they, if they didn't have the LPMT helping them, if we didn't have that community group going, they would be out of sheep. You see people's faces when you talk to them. I've talked to a guy about a year ago, and you just see on his face, he just looks in distress, that sort of thing. And then I talked to him again in the last couple months, and you can see on his face that he's just able to function. What happens is these guys start to go under. So it's, it is important that you put someone out there to help them, and you have those community groups. And so basically you can go from losing half your flock to losing maybe a few sheep. And yes, we are starting to see an, an, a decrease of stock losses, and that we've, we're seeing that within each group. So the, the EOs record the information, and they record the information from the landholders calling in, 
and we're slowly starting to see a decrease of stock losses every year. So you're not going to see it drop off right away, like from 100 sheep to zero sheep, but every year you'll see less and less stock losses coming in. So it's a slow decrease, and that's what you want to see. Okay, so in terms of what's in your armory, uh, it's trapping, it's baiting, it's shooting. There are dog fences in Australia all over the place. So tell us a little bit about what's in your armory. It's baiting, trapping, shooting. Shooting is optimistic. Baiting, we're actually finding that dogs are are, are learning more and more about baits. Um, there's been a bit of research about they could be a little bit less affected than we hope. Um, however, it is still important to bait, and the younger dogs definitely pick them up, that sort of thing. But there is a little learned behavior happening with baiting. It definitely takes out a lot of the foxes, that the baiting does. So you definitely, if you have a fox program and you're trying to kill dogs, you definitely need to wipe the foxes out first with, with the baiting. And look, a lot of these guys end up um, running a trapping program because they can they can see the dog, they know it's dead, but also it, it picks up the dogs that aren't picking up the bait. So it's definitely important to be running a trapping program. And uh, in uh, in Queensland, we've seen uh, extensive cluster fencing taking place. Is much of that happening in WA? Yeah, you have uh, three cluster fences outside the state barrier fence. You have the um, Carnarvon cluster fence, and you have two in the Mekathera area, one large one and one smaller one, and then you have one in Kalgoorlie. Um, there's none that are happening inside the state barrier fence, but um, they currently uh, have contractors fixing the state barrier fence at, at this moment. It's really a, a massive infrastructure issue as well as uh, on-the-ground works, and underneath that there's uh, this mental health aspect. It's, uh, it really does feel like it's a war going on. It definitely is a war going on, and that's how I look at it every day. You know, I have the maps on the wall. I talk to the producers. It's a a battle. So you're working out where the gaps are in the system, where do we have LPMTs, where do we have groups, where are dogs moving in, and where do we need to focus our attention and where do we need to focus our funding. So focus our funding and attention uh, in front of the line, not behind the line. That means we need to be focusing. Currently, we have a new group forming, um, and we have dogs as far as to Jinjin. So we need to be focusing that funding and that energy into into that area, not not as much way way before the way further back um, beyond the lines. Do you find that uh, sheep producers that are sort of on the front line that haven't seen dogs before that suddenly are starting to see the result of a wild dog attack? It must be horrific. Do they freely report dog attacks, or is it something that? Uh, you need to sort of coax people into reporting. So, first of all, people don't even realize they have wild dog problem. They they think it's a town dog, or they just think the sheep are acting weird, or they lost some sheep, but they just thought they died. Um, the eagle got it. The fox got it. Um, so, really, you have to bring awareness into that area, and that's what we're doing in that sort of West Midlands area um, that covers seven shires. We have to run a lot of wild dog workshops, um, pig workshops as well, just to bring awareness that what wild dog attacks look like. You know, are sheep running through the fences? Are you finding them in dams? Are you losing a few more? That sort of thing. So you have to bring awareness into the community. And then, oh, another thing that we did, we run a um, dogger in the area just to get some photos. And we got some photos of wild dogs just to show the community there are dingo-looking um, wild dog in the area, and that gets people turned on a little bit, and people start to notice, and then they start reporting. 
And then the floodgates are open and you get heaps of reports coming through, but you just have to share with people what to look for in the beginning. So, my, yeah, it's an enormous job that you have, and I know people are very grateful for your work. How do people get in touch with you? I live in Geraldton. Come have a coffee with me anytime. And my number is 0417-622-780. You're free to call me on that phone number or mej.aldrich at wool.com. Thanks a lot for having me, Jan. That was Maya Aldridge, the Wild Dog Coordinator for Western Australia. Funding is available under AWI's Community Wild Dog Control Initiative. You can find these forms at www.wool.com forward slash wild dogs. If you listen to the yarn on a weekly basis, you would have noticed that we've been focusing on our West Australian wool growers, who make up 14% of all wool levy payers in Australia. This is our last instalment of our WA focus for the moment, dedicated to the 4,500 wool growers scattered across the cropping regions and adjacent rangelands of southern Western Australia. It's certainly fascinating hearing about the different stories and experiences across Australia from our wool growers and stakeholders in the wool industry, and we really look forward to bringing you more stories from the land down under next week. If you like what you've been hearing, make sure you've subscribed to the podcast or send us your feedback and ideas via email at theyarnatwool.com. You can fill your Instagram with wool industry aesthetics at Beyond the Bale, and we're also on Twitter at Wool Innovation. That's it for this week, folks. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you next time for another yarn.